Well, I've made it down to Southern Oregon to get Lady Jupes ready for a summer road trip. And she had a little bit of work she still needed done from the last road trip. So I'm down here. I might sound a little different, might sound a little off, because I'm actually just in a parking lot. I'm just, I'm not like in a studio. I'm not in some nice place with good signal and quiet sounds. Nope, I'm just in a parking lot while I get some work done. But the show must go on, Alex. And what could go wrong with that, particularly with the Starlink situation you've got right now? Yeah, my Starlink's busted too. The motor, the dish works, so I can rabbit ear it. You know, I can, I, I've done this. I've gone out there and tried to point it at the northern sky and try to figure out where the satellite's at, and it'll work for a bit. But finally, after about like a week and change, maybe a little, almost two weeks, they finally got back to me and they're going to send me a replacement. That's good, good. Don't forget to buy an Ethernet adapter if you're getting the square one now. Right. I think I probably will. I'm going to go from the round dishy to the square dishy. I went shopping today. While I was killing time, while they were working on the rig, I haven't gone to Best Buy since uh, the pandemic started. I just haven't had a chance to go in. So I was curious, what are they doing for their home automation gear now? And they're they're really big, of course, on the Amazon ecosystem and the Google ecosystem. Huge on Arlo and a lot of the video lights that you can attach to your house that have like motion detection. They sell a whole bunch of those. Like I said, I haven't been in a long time, and I'm sure a lot of people listening know this, but I didn't really realize or appreciate that they're doing e-ink displays for all the prices and stuff for most things. Have you seen this? You probably have seen this because you've probably gone in more recently than I have. It's pretty cool, isn't it? It works, right? Some of them are a little hard to read, but I, I like it. I think it's a nice touch. It's cool. And then the one device that really impressed me out of all the stuff there that I saw, I didn't pick it up, but the pricing on the Lenovo smart clock stands that have Google Assistant built in. It looks like an alarm clock, but it has Google Assistant. $29.99 for this thing. Yeah, that is nice. Open box, 25 bucks, And then they have one with a screen that has the Google cards on it and stuff like that for $89.99. I was at Best Buy just this week buying a new hard drive, but let's not, uh, let's not spoil the show. <laughs> Ooh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was good to go in there, you know, do a little shopping, get a sense of where the pricing's at and... Honestly, it doesn't seem like the, the tech pricing's really changed much. Everything's going up in price except for a lot of the tech stuff. Still seems like it was priced it was a year or two ago. I feel like walking into Best Buy is how like Harry Potter must feel walking out of Diagon Alley or something. Like this is this is how <laughs> normal people live. This is like how muggles live. <laughs> I would have loved to have seen the Starlink kit at Best Buy. I mean, I knew it just wasn't going to happen. But imagine if I could have walked in there and bought a new dish tonight with a working motor. Imagine this. Imagine if Starlink made a dish that was repairable. Oh, whoa. Like maybe I could open it up and replace the motor. No. <laughs> and then I could just carry spare parts on board and then like install them when it goes wrong. That's just <laughs> that's crazy, Alex. It's so frustrating. You know, it's going to be like a three dollar part that's broken. Yeah, I'm actually a little concerned about how I'm going to transport it in the future, because as far as I know, it was just transporting it, going down the road, maybe the jar, a jarring bump, something broke the motor. And uh, so now I'm thinking about when I do get a replacement dish, like, do I need to get like a case for this thing, like a Pelican case? Like, I, I don't know. I'm curious what the audience might do if they have a Starlink and they're transporting it. Are there Starlink cases for safe transport? Is that a thing? We'll build your wooden crate between me and Brent. I think we can make that happen. There you go. That that looked pretty nice. Well, we're live tonight somehow. I don't know how. The cellular signal is mostly holding on. I've dropped 6,000 packets, so it's not perfect, <laughs> but it's holding. Good enough, dude. We've got folks in the Discord. The self-hosted Discord's going like always at selfhosted.show slash Discord. Hit a milestone recently. We did. We just passed 4,500 members, which is crazy. That is so great. You got to admit. It was a little awkward when we decided to go with Discord since it is not a self-hosted chat platform, but you can't deny the networking aspect of it. Well, I just look at the uh, palaver that you and Wes have been through on Linux Unplugged with your Matrix server, and I just I feel completely vindicated in that decision. Yeah, you might be right. You might be right. The Matrix server has been a real learning process. I like to think of it as a long-term investment. Right, something like that. Something like that. <laughs> now, speaking of long-term planning, it's not that far away, but I'm going to be in the UK in August, early August, so I'm kind of floating the idea of a UK meetup because several people messaged me when we were talking about the Raleigh one saying that they were jealous. 
the vague, very vague plan at this point is uh, the weekend of August the 6th, somewhere in London, so that people can fly in from Ireland and Europe more easily. Somewhere in London, we'll have a meetup, maybe a pub, maybe a community centre, something like that. I don't know. We're going to figure it out. But uh, if you're interested, send me a message on the Discord or hit me up on Twitter at Ironic Badger. Uh, I want to go so bad. I bet August is a great time to be in London, too. It could be. It could be a good time, or it could be snowing and raining sideways in August. Who knows? I mean... <laughs> no. <laughs> maybe not snow, but I mean, it, honestly, it could be 35 Celsius, or it could be 10. Who knows? Do you want people to send you uh, suggestions via email? Maybe the contact page? The contact page, anything like that, if you've got a venue in mind. I was, I was thinking, we did a few events for Red Hat Consulting when I was in London at BrewDog. Those pubs are quite hip and trendy and modern. They've got like a whole area upstairs that you can kind of rent out some some of them. So maybe something like that would be nice because they're sort of half open, half inside type thing. So kind of hedge our bets on the weather. That's probably a pretty good idea. Let's be honest. Man, I'm so jealous. Please take pictures. I want to I want to see it. Maybe one of these days we'll get you out there, huh? Maybe uh, Fosdem. I'd love to. Definitely on my list. It, it kind of got set back the last couple of years, but it's definitely on my list. This is one of those episodes, we have them, I think, about every other episode. I'm going to have a bunch of work after uh, this this episode. I just I just know it. I know it. And it's going to be it's going to be because my wife's going to demand it. You have come across something. I, I feel like either you talked to me about it before off air or someone did. It just doesn't seem right that we haven't talked about this on air yet. Well, a couple of weeks ago, the Tandoor Project, a self-hosted recipe manager, released version 1.4. So they've been in in development for a year plus at this point, so it's very possible you've seen it on Reddit at some point before. Yeah, maybe. But the 1.4 release has got some notable changes in it. There's a whole new shopping list feature built in, which is pretty darn cool. And so just to be clear, this is a recipe manager that you would run on your own system where they offer a self-hosted version and if we, if we haven't talked about it on the show before, we should have. Well, we've talked about Chowdown, and I'm fairly sure we've talked about Mealy before. If we haven't, I use both of those equally. I still love Chowdown because it's a simple Markdown-based system. There's no database. There's no craziness. It's just a stupid, simple Markdown plain text files. But having a database gives you some nice features, like in Tandor, for example, when you import a recipe, you can then add it into a meal plan. So you could have a family-facing meal plan dashboard. Take it one step further, the app knows which ingredients go into those recipes. So you can say, excuse me, Tandor, could you please add that to my shopping list and then pull that shopping list up when you're at the grocery store and uh, just buy everything you need for that specific thing. Now, what I saw in Reddit as a particularly interesting idea was some kind of like self-hosted HelloFresh. Someone suggested to the developer that he integrates with Instacart's API with those recipes to order three green peppers and some chicken and whatever else you need for that, that recipe. So you end up with this like self-hosted HelloFresh type thing, which I thought would be an amazing, amazing thing. No kidding. Brilliant idea. This has another feature that you're probably about to touch on, but I just have to talk about because this is what won me over. And it is one of the newer features they just recently implemented, and it's this really slick import feature where you can give it the URL of a website that has a recipe. I threw one of those, one of those like essentially a blog post where they tell you their whole life story just to give you a recipe and they have pictures and oh, I hate those so much. I found like the worst one, man, where it has like slide over JavaScript and just all kinds of junk. Ugh. And I, I, I gave the URL to Tander and it actually processed the page. It pulled out all the individual steps, all of the individual ingredients, and it itemized it all just perfectly. I threw some simpler ones at it. It did great, too. But I was really impressed that it got that that really complicated one. And so it's like you just take this really, really long three-page post and condense it down into just a good block information you need. And then you add it to your database. And now you got that recipe. It's amazing. It will import the images from the website. It will also pick out keywords. Yes, yes, yes. It will figure out the steps you need, the ingredients, uh, everything. So the the import stuff is really slick. And you can do one recipe at a time, or you can just give it a list of URLs with a, a line, a new line per link. 
and it just it just works. I mean, that's the best kind of works, right? I had the wife use it because she was just yesterday talking to me about how you know, my grandma used index cards and when I when I first started cooking, I created a binder, she said, and I had all my recipes in this binder that I'd printed out, but that's gone now, and she wanted to start collecting her recipes again. And so I had her sit down and input a few of them into this, and I'd say within 15 minutes, she probably had four recipes added and she was testing the shopping cart feature to see how that works. And then she was visualizing, okay, well, how would this work if I'm if I'm at if I'm at the grocery store and I have my phone with me, how would the UI look? And so she like resizes the browser to see if it works okay on mobile. It totally did. It looks like it's going to render just fine. And so she had herself a list that she could just go down the aisle and check off as she buys. And she experimented with seeing what happens if multiple recipes call for the same ingredient and if it gets the right amounts correct in the shopping cart and it does. It just does a really good job with all of that. And it supports Markdown for your cooking notes. That is cool, yes. I was going to touch on the comment feature at the bottom. There's also another option to log a specific cook. So I'm thinking for my barbecue grilling, like if I put the brisket recipe that I use in there, I can link things like the YouTube video, but then I can also give myself a, a rating out of five and a specific date and time that's in there. And then tie that into a specific comment on a specific day to say i Let's try, say I tried a new technique that day with uh, with grilling. It's a serious business, don't you know? You got to make sure you get it right. And if you got, if you nailed it, you got to note down what you did. <laughs> or if you mess it up. Exactly, exactly. Now, the, the other thing that I really, really like is it has a servings option at the top of the page with like a plus and a minus. And in the ingredients thing here, let's say you've got two pounds of chicken in your recipe and it's four servings. I can just hit the plus button and double that to... I don't know, seven, let's go with seven servings. Now, I mean, the mental maths isn't too difficult on that one. But how many times have you had to do some weird fractional maths on a cup of flour or something weird like that? And and the servings thing in here, it works flawlessly. Yeah. And it's, again, that's also nice when you're using it to generate the shopping list. So you know how much you need of something in there. The other thing that I didn't get a lot of time to use, but I think was really interesting to my wife was it has a meal planner in there and uh, you get a calendar and you can plan out your meals. Of course, you can use, you can select the recipes that you've already input to the system. Then if you would like, it will actually export you out a calendar file, an ICS file or whatever they are. And you can import that meal plan into your calendar app of choice. So you have it somewhere outside Tandor as well, which I thought that was a really nice touch. Now for Hadia's thing, there is a whole cookbooks feature so you could kind of group recipes, you know, like grandma, mum, wife, whatever. You know, for me, I could have a barbecue cookbook, for example. That would be pretty cool. There's so many features in this thing. I feel like we could spend an hour on it almost. But if you're interested, it's obviously free and open source software over on GitHub. There'll be a link in the show notes. It's at Tandor Recipes slash recipes in GitHub. Yeah, definitely worth checking out. I mean, when's the last time we get this excited about a recipe app? I mean, maybe we just like recipe apps, but this is a whole management suite. But what was the process like of getting it installed? Because I tried their online demo. Since I'm on the road, I didn't want to get go through all the process of loading it up. But I think I'm going to have to do that when I get home. So give me an idea of what I'm looking at. It's not too bad. Three containers. There's a database, so Postgres. There's the app itself, which is a Django-based uh, application. And then there's an Nginx front end. I mean, you can switch out the Nginx front end web server, if you like, with your web server of choice. Personally, I would prefer it if the developer shipped the Tandor application with a simple web server built in. The G-Unicorn stuff that's built into the app that ships is not really fit for purpose in terms of public hosting. And he mentions that in the documentation. He's very clear about that. And that's why he suggests people spin up Nginx. But I'm a fairly experienced Docker administrator at this point, a container guy. And I got a couple of my file paths wrong. So some of it's on me, admittedly. But it took me about an hour to get this going, simply because I had to link three containers together and make sure everything was just so. And there's an environment variables file and all that kind of stuff. It's not too difficult, honestly, if you don't copy paste the wrong paths. But it could be easier if it was just an all self-contained app like, for example, Plexes. I understand there's a bit of a debate there. Some people have the philosophy, you just do the core application, and then you do one instance of Nginx and one instance of your database, and 
maybe whatever else you might have, and don't run multiple copies of that software in a container. And I definitely think that's probably an, an appropriate setup for uh, production. You know, anything that's in a business or enterprise or anything that's going to scale beyond a dozen users, probably worth considering. But for this sort of scenario, the one that you're talking about now where you're going to run it on your home server, it's going to be you and your wife and maybe me and maybe Brent. <laughs> They're going to use it total, right? And so there it does make a lot of sense to just have something that is maybe just a single Docker container. You pop it on your machine and you go. Particularly as it's not a super heavy application, right? It, it's a small Django app and an Nginx web server. Like, that's that's very tiny. Also, I mean, I know this is easy for me to say, but wouldn't be impossible to have two types of containers, one that's just the application core and one that includes maybe the full suite of everything you need? Yeah, so Mr. Developer Man, Vabin1111, if you're listening, that's pretty much the only feedback I have for you, really. The application's great. The stuff you've done over the last year plus improving this application is to be commended, truly. But the setup process, I know I saw in, in Reddit that you don't understand why people find it difficult. I hope just what we've articulated there helps a little bit of meat on that particular bone. It's it's just linking different things together in people's different setups. You know, some people are running Unraid, some people are running TrueNAS. I'm running Docker Compose through an Ansible templating thing that I created. So, you know, there's lots of different strokes of different folks and anything you can do to reduce that deployment complexity is going to increase your adoption. It's as simple as that. Definitely. Well said. And uh, I'm looking forward to getting this running. This is going to be something I know the wife and I are really going to, going to enjoy, but I don't think I'll be setting it up on my Proxmox system. Not yet, but I am planning to build one soon. And it sounds like we got a brand new release that looks great. We do, 7.2. Now, the headline feature for me, besides, you know, fun stuff like the Linux kernel getting a bump and QEMU and LXC and ZFS and all those things getting bumps to the latest versions, is support for the accelerated Vert.io GL display driver. I know, it sounds thrilling, right? But hear me out. The This particular display driver is in software. And I went from about 13 frames per second. We all know what that feels like. That's what the <laughs> traditional VM in a browser has felt like for a decade. I went from about 10 or 15 frames a second to over a hundred. Hey, whoa, really? Just changing that feature. And there was no drivers required on the guest. I had to install a couple of pack packages on Proxmox itself, but it tells you what they are in the documentation. And it was that was it. I was done. And suddenly I've got 10 times performance improvement. How often does that happen? That's huge. I can tell you I've, I've experienced that on Parallels on the M1 Max. When they added support for the M1 platform, they added Vert.io and Vert.io Vert GL for the graphics pass-through. And it makes the desktop on Linux responsive like it's on the metal. It's really, really great. And so how are you accessing this it, through Proxmox? Is it is it through the web console? Through the web browser. Yeah, nothing crazy at all. So there's a Spice client that connects to the VM's console in the browser. There's no hardware pass-through going on here. I want to be absolutely clear. This is all in software. You know, traditionally, we did a whole episode of Linux Unplugged a long time ago now on uh, GPU pass-through and how much of a bitch it can be to get the right hardware and get the right software and everything all lined up just tickety-boo. It's a lot easier these days now. NVIDIA have kind of capitulated there, but... I digress. This is all software. And, you know, I can't overstate like just a 10x performance improvement right in front of my eyes. And so now I've gone from needing a spare laptop to test Linux desktop distros to get the feel, right? To get that high frame rate feel of what a new GNOME release feels like, or what a new KDE Plasma release feels like. I can do this now in the browser from Proxmox. And it's so great. That's awesome. I'm, oh, I've decided Proxmox is going on the studio servers. We, we put a poll out to the audience again and said, what do you think of a Proxmox with Nix combo? Probably some open suits in there too, just to make the lizards happy. And uh, we're going to have three systems and at least two of them are going to be running Proxmox. Going to start with 7.2 out of the gate. So we're going to get this feature out of the gate. Proxmox is a great choice. There's a, it, it's a Debian user space with a modified Ubuntu kernel, which means that you get ZFS support as well. No DKMS nonsense to mess around with. It's just there. And you get a nice little GUI on top to manage your VMs. I mean, uh, there's some other stuff too, like they've got a pretty slick backup server 
and you know the community around Proxmox is really starting to gather steam. I've really noticed in the last, I would say, two to three years, it's gone from being a kind of niche project. It's it's really up and coming right now. You know, they've been consistent. They've delivered over and over and over again with it, and I think that makes a difference. I've I've just seen their reputation get stronger and stronger. You know, if they're ever looking to sponsor, hit us up. We basically just gave them a pretty good plug right there for free, huh? I know. They're good for a while, aren't they? One other thing I want to point out that I thought was pretty cool, and this is a very minor annoyance, but if you're a Proxmox user, you will appreciate it. You can now set your default VM ID range. So when you go and click the button that says Create VM, it normally assigns a three-digit number, like 100, 102, whatever. And it will just do it sequentially based on the next number that's uh, available. A bit like a DHCP reservation. Now I can select start uh, that range and end that range of the auto kind of like VM ID DHCP requests for one of a better idea. I can select a range to put those numbers in and I can have my kind of normal VMs sit at the top where I see them all the time. And then my more ephemeral stuff sits at the bottom out of the way where I use it for testing. Now, after my buddy Brent went home the other day, <laughs> I was sat in my basement by myself, Billy No Mates, within earshot of my server, just doing some tinkering around because we did some electrics down there and I wanted to automate uh, something that we'd put in with one of the Shellys in a, a light switch. And I was sat next to my server and I could just hear... Oh, no. And I was like, oh, no. Dead disc. Turns out it wasn't the cable people. Oh, right. Last time you thought it was the cable. Oh, no, it really was going. It really was the drive. So quick trip to Best Buy the next morning. Bought a new 14 terabyte easy store. Ripped that bad boy out of the case. And it's now in my backup server doing my whole like pre-clear ritual testing burning thing. No data loss. No, luckily I was able to just copy all the data from the failing drive onto the rest of my MergerFS array. I actually had more than 10 terabytes free, so I was lucky. There, really, I could do that. I just removed it from the array and copied everything across with rsync. What do you think it would take for a new file system to work its way into your life, for you to find a new love for a file system? Um, just say hypothetically, like BcacheFS comes out. It's so great. It's XFS meets ButterFS meets ZFS, and it's just next-level performance, too. What would it take for you to switch? Would it be Would it be a matter of years would it be something you'd start experimenting with sooner than later? I don't know as I have a need for anything new. My needs through MergerFS have been met so comprehensively. Back in the day, if you look at the Perfect Media Server kind of blog post series, you can kind of see my transition over the years from, I think it was AUFS to MHDDFS to MD RAID through ZFS even for actual media files and then I ended up with just EXT4 and XFS on the drives themselves, uh, kind of bridged with MergerFS on top. It's just been so reliable for, what, six or seven years? When I don't even know when I wrote that first post. It was a long time ago. I don't know. Like I, I felt the need to add ZFS into the setup for data I truly care about, mostly for replication ease and stuff like that. But I've kind of solved that now with uh, Restic as well. So I've got a couple of ways I back stuff up for, for the important data, but for media files that are right once, read a couple of times probably. MergerFS does everything I need. What are you uh, what are you hinting at there, Chris? Well, so the word on the street, although we'll see if this really pans out, but the word on the street is that we're going to see BcacheFS hit the Linux kernel in about the next six months or so, maybe a little bit longer, but it's nigh. And the developer, Kent Overstreet, recently said that his goal is to essentially make a file system that does just that. It kind of replaces or it offers uh, the advantages of XFS, which XFS is a very solid, very tried and true file system. And with some of the benefits of ButterFS, like copy on write, um, snapshots, stuff like that. That's pretty cool. He was asked recently, who's using BcacheFS? Is anybody using it in production? And he said, well, I do know that a lot of video shops that are dealing with multiple 4K streams are using BcacheFS. And it, it made me think, like, I think every time I've switched a major file system, it's been to solve a performance problem or a scalability problem. Like, I, I really finally gave in and tried ButterFS for real when I needed to solve storage issues on a Raspberry Pi, and I just wasn't going to use ZFS. I had no choice. So I had to learn ButterFS, and then I learned that I actually liked it quite a bit. 
but I only did it when I was trying to solve like a, a new problem. And uh, I just wonder, you know, like BcashFS is going to come along one day. It's going to be great, no doubt about it. But I, I, I'm kind of of the uh, school of thought that when it comes to my data, I like to give that stuff years, you know, years of cooking, years of pe- other people using it in production. That's just one area where I'll, I'll kind of tap the brakes a little bit. And so that's why it took me a while to come around to ButterFS, to be honest. That's really what I love about ZFS. I know it has a bit of a learning curve and a bit of an aura around it, but <laughs> what are you laughing at? An aura. I think a bit of an aura is a funny way to put it. Yeah. <laughs> but it does. I mean, just listen to you and Alan back in the day on TechSnap. Like, you made it sound like this massive, complex beast, and actually it's not. It's just two drives in a mirror, right? I mean, it's that's it. That's what I use anyway. <laughs> yeah. It, it does. It can be very complex, but yeah. Um, not so not so bad really so i'm glad that you got it found i'm sorry there was actually the drive and not the cable though that does stink well so this presents an interesting opportunity for content actually so this will be the first shuck drive that i've had fail on me i don't have the plastic casing anymore i chucked that out as a matter of principle so i'm really interested to see what happens when i send this 12 terabyte drive which is only about 15 months old back to western digital it came with a two-year warranty and there's apparently something called the Magnuson Moss Act, I think that's what it is. If they try and play funny buggers with it, I can quote them and say that, and apparently then they'll just capitulate and send me their replacement <laughs> reconditioned drive because they can't prove that my shucking it broke it or something. Let's talk a little Ansible, one of our favorite topics here, and I think maybe one we should should probably share a little more on the show as Brent begins his journey down the Ansible lane. But in the meantime... Before we go down Ansible Lane, maybe we should stop off uh, on uh, Bitwarden Drive. What do you got here? What about if I put some peanut butter with the chocolate? Yeah, that sounds perfect for me. And bring Ansible together with Bitwarden. How about that? Right. That sounds good, actually. (laughs) There was a chat happening on Discord, I think it was this morning, where Orange, uh, Jake, who was on the show a little while ago, was talking about how he uses Ansible Vault crossed with Bitwarden. There is a reference to one of my favorite Bash.org moments where his demo password is Hunter2. Those that know, know about that one. Um, But essentially, what this allows me to do is use Bitwarden as my credential store for my Ansible Vault encryption password. So all of my secrets remain encrypted using Ansible Vault with 256-bit blah, blah, blah as a file that I store version controlled in Git What I'm doing now is rather than having a clear text file sitting on disk to decrypt that file, I am now using the Bitwarden CLI to connect the uh, vault password that I've now put in Bitwarden to unlock that uh, encrypted file in Ansible. This feels like it could be pretty powerful. I think I'm understanding, but um, so essentially when as Ansible is setting up a machine, if it needs to deploy software that needs some sort of secret password or, or key... Instead of having to put that somewhere in the Ansible config or whatever, there's now an option to have, as Ansible is deploying, use the Bitwarden CLI to look that password up and sort of insert that password as it's being deployed. Is that right? You could do that using the lookup plugin, I think. Um, But the way that we're doing it right now, at least, is using a... So you, you can actually... This is a really neat trick that I didn't know until this morning. You can put in your Ansible config the vault file location as a script and in that script you can actually have it do the bitwarden cli export lookup thing of the password and then it returns it as a string which then feeds into the uh, the rest of the process so all i'm doing i haven't moved any of the secrets themselves out of ansible out of the vault in ansible but i've moved the vault password from a local text file on my laptop into bitwarden and now I've connected the two together using Orange's post. <laughs> Very nice. We'll have links to this so you can follow along. We'll have links to this in the show notes, of course, at selfhosted.show slash 71. I thought it'd be really difficult, but it turned out to be about a five or ten line change. There'll be a commit in the uh, show notes if you're curious as just to how easy it is. Easier than getting the recipe app going. <laughs> <laughs> Much easier. <yes. laughs> uh, we love you, Tandor. We love you. We've been having a lot of fun on the Discord over the last couple of weeks with Ansible and Infrastructure as Code talk, as you can probably tell from how much of it's in the show. (laughs) One of the things I decided to do when Brent was here 
he just flippantly asked me, can you do DNS from your Docker Compose generator? And I was like, sure. Knowing full well I couldn't, but how hard could it be, right? <laughs> Turned out to be quite the, the operation. It took me about two or three days with the help of about four or five people on Discord to write possibly one of the most, uh, dare I say it, over-engineered Ansible tasks ever. This thing essentially takes a traffic label, strips out with regex a bunch of stuff surrounding the bit of data I want, which is, you know, the host name of like test.jupiterbroadcasting.com. That's the bit I actually want, but I had to find a way to iterate over all the labels in the nested list that I have in Ansible and then extract them and do what I needed to do and then only act on them when the uh, item in the list was set to active equals true. There's a lot of logic in there. Anyway, the upshot is we can now specify for all of the self-hosted JB infrastructure simply by adding a container with a traffic label into our compose definition file, we add the DNS record automatically into Cloudflare. Hmm, that is pretty damn slick. So just by having the label for traffic, yep. it figures out from there what the, what the host name should be and all of that? Absolutely. Yeah, that's it. And what's particularly fun is, you know, let's say I wanted to spin up an Nginx just to test, for example. I just copy and paste that in there. And if I put test dot, as long as the domain's in my Cloudflare account or I have permissions, like you've given me yeah. delegated permissions on jb.com, I can add something into that Git repo. And we could then theoretically have a continuous integration GitHub action that would pick up that change and deploy that new container and also the DNS records in Cloudflare automatically for us. <laughs> That's what I'm talking about, Alex. That is awesome. It's really cool. That is awesome. And that is such a great example of, we recently were talking about Nix and Nix packages and managing Nix OS and all of that being a deterministic system and how it compared to Ansible. And this is such a great example where you can go much further with Ansible. You can go much beyond just, just what you can do with Nix. Very exciting. And, it makes me pumped to kind of redo some of this infrastructure stuff and do it like this from the beginning. Because, like, down the road, it's just going to make future deployments so much simpler, right? That's that's really it. When you spin up a new show or decide you're going to have a garage sale or whatever it is, it's all automatic. That, that's so great. Yeah, and, and done once, and now it's done. One of my favorite tricks in this particular task, and there are a couple, <laughs> one is to use JSON query to create a dictionary that I can then um, split and join and what have you within the task itself. The other one is to use what's called a ternary operator. Now, Ginger, which is the templating language that Ansible has, is, is pretty amazing, and you can do a lot of cool stuff. But I was running into an issue where my item.active contents was either true or false and the ansible module was expecting the phrase present or absent now you as a human can work out that true equals present and the absent equals false computer is stupid you have to tell computer this thing turns out with the ternary operator we can actually do that so if we pass in a true or false statement into the ternary operator and then specify just a couple of other values present and absent in this case we can have true or false actually be any other string that we require. Very simple, very cool. Scott writes in looking for chip shortage alternatives. With this continuing on through the foreseeable future and Raspberry Pis becoming the new unobtainium, I would like to hear some ideas from you both as to what to look for in alternatives. I'd also love to hear from other insiders what they're using through feedback of their own. Specifically, this is a problem for me since I like having dedicated systems for certain tasks. For example, a Pi-hole is a dedicated appliance for me and I want my DNS to be reliable. I just want stuff to work with minimal administration. I've got loads of other hobbies and I don't want to spend all my free time being my own IT admin as they're always overworked, underpaid and usually grumpy after business hours. Can relate, Scott. Can relate. <laughs> You may be right about that. Got to admit. You know, Scott, the first thing that came to mind for me, and this is something that I've already done once, is low power, cheap used laptops on eBay. 
Often they have more horsepower than a Raspberry Pi. Some of them even have features like QuickSync, so they make it great for Plex. The only real challenges that I've run into and why I haven't really talked about it a lot on air is because I'm almost always hitting some kind of I.O. limitation that just drives me crazy. Maybe it's USB or Ethernet or something like that. But depending on what your needs are, like if you get if you could find a laptop like some of these ThinkPads that support two disks and maybe you're okay with just that amount of storage, you could actually make a laptop work pretty well in place of a Raspberry Pi. What do you think, Alex? You got any ideas? Well, something like an old ThinkPad you can have pretty cheap. Like I've just had a quick look now. T450, which is fifth gen Intel, 100, 140, depending on the spec and how much RAM and disk and have what have you that's in there. But we've also been talking about this on the Discord a fair bit recently with the uh, like tiny mini micro stuff, that kind of stuff, like um, Serve the Home. I've been doing a whole series on this stuff. Now, they typically buy the higher end stuff, the newer stuff, or they get sent it anyway. We've been talking about the kind of the lower end of that market. There are some old thin client boxes that have been knocking around for a long time. I, I think it's, is it Wise, spelt W-Y-S-E? These guys, uh, they do thin clients for enterprise. So they, they've got boxes knocking around by the thousand, and you can get them super cheap on eBay. And often they've got Ethernet built in and USB. Depending on the model you go for, you might be lucky to get one with some SATA space in there. You know, maybe you could have a SATA SSD in there or an M.2 if you get really lucky. Uh, so that's the route I'd probably go. Yeah, we looked at a couple of those recently. And um, those could be really awesome, too, for low power. I think, like, the biggest bottleneck there was memory on those units. Like, they're usually pretty... But depending on, again, what you're doing, that might not be a, that might not be an issue. It just kind of depends on your workload. These wise boxes are about the size of two or three CD cases, maybe. So they, they're very, very small. And they're very, very cheap. They can be had for as low as $15, $20, something like that. Some of them don't include memory at that kind of price, but some of them do. And they're x86. They're atoms, right? I mean, they're x you could just run anything. Some are atom. Some are AMD. All right. Well, Oliver writes in. He says, hi, guys. Thanks for the show. I've been listening from the beginning, and I've learned a lot. I've been struggling to find a great self-hosted podcast solution for a while now. Audiobook Shelf has recently blown up, and it's been really actively developed. And the podcast feature is probably the most excited I've been for a self-host application for a long time, but there's still some work to be done. It's amazing what's been accomplished already, though. It's now my primary podcast listening app. I wonder, Alex, have you played it all with podcasts and audiobook shelf? I've still got it spun up from the episode we talked about it a couple of weeks ago. Did you try a podcast in there? I haven't done any podcasts, but we could do a live <laughs> we could do a live test right now if you like. Oh, all right. Let's, oh, that's exciting. I know this is a common question that comes into the show is, hey, how can I can I self-host my own podcast? And I never really feel like we have a super great answer because I think a great aspect of podcasts, in my opinion, is that – now, I know not everybody does it this way, but for me, is that the MP3 file is actually locally on the storage device of my phone. And so I can listen to a podcast without using data or when I don't have signal or when I just don't want to use much battery life either. And so – I really like having podcasts locally on my phone. So that's why I've ended up trying to use podcast apps that sync. But I, yeah, I don't love any of it. I found it. So I have to create a new library. So I've just added a new folder to my um, audio bookshelf container. So I'm going to have a dedicated podcasts folder. Okay, that container's now spun up. So I'm going to just load up audio bookshelf, add a new library select podcasts from the list i've got to give it the correct icon that's very important now interestingly enough the metadata provider is itunes so even though it's a self-hosted podcast um server for want of a better word still using uh, internet-based metadata that's a real shame you know they could be using the podcast index and they could also use PodPing, and they wouldn't even need to use the index that's a bit of a shame Oh, I see. So I can have a... Oh, I can put an RSS feed in there. All right. So where's the self-hosted RSS feed? Self-hosted.show slash RSS. Slash RSS. Yep. It's real simple. All right. Let's put that in there. Let's see what happens when I click submit. Oh, that's pretty cool. It's found the album art. It's got the genres correct. It's got the description. Auto download episodes. Check. Add podcast. All right. Hmm. 
Let's see what happens. All right. All right. That doesn't seem too bad. I got to be honest. Okay. This is pretty great. Yeah. This is the this is the way, you know? You were just saying you, you don't have a great way. This is it, I think, anyway. Okay. All right. All right. Maybe we got to give this a more serious go then. Because this would be nice to just have a solution for people because they write in all the time. Okay. Thanks, Oliver. I'm going to try that out. I think that'll be pretty great. We got some boosts. Pew, pew, into the show. First one came from XThumbSX, who sent us a boost using a new podcast app. 5,000 sats. He mentions that there are silicon wedding bands that solve the issue of like, uh, I think we were talking about getting them in the cases or, or getting them, uh, you know, problems with when working with electricity. He says this is also great when installing smart devices. They don't dig into your finger when gripping tools or sports equipment. That's pretty awesome. I didn't realize they made silicone wedding rings. I'm, I'm such an idiot. I never even checked, you know. It's not something that occurred to me. I just took mine off and <laughs> didn't think about it. Yeah. Cospeland sent us a boost for 3,690 sats. He always come, He always sends us in like numbers that I think mean something. And he says, yes, the numbers are Tesla numbers. And he also wants to know if we have any SUS servers. Do you have any SUS servers? I do not. Mm, all right. I didn't think so. Not surprising, really. Uh, I have uh, one in production and I have one on a, on a Raspberry Pi CM4. So... Not a lot, but I have some. For 500 sats, Jin Fomatique writes in, Hi Chris, I just stumbled upon a French blog discussing about podcasting 2.0. The article is translated to English, and here's what they did. As podcast lovers for over two decades, we have founded Ad-Aures? A-U-R-E-S? Aures? Aures? Yeah. <laughs> My French pronunciation is uh, poo-poo, shall we say. Anyway, uh, they're aiming to build a fair and sustainable ecosystem for everyone in the podcasting industry. They've developed Castopod, a free and open source solution for hosting your podcasts in order to facilitate access to podcasting 2.0 for everybody. Yeah, Castopod's actually pretty neat. There's a there's another one out there too that's being created and they're supporting all of the podcasting 2.0 spec out of the gate, which means Things like the alternative enclosure tag, transcripts, uh, clips, and um, things like that. And the idea is is that you could just kind of use their out-of-the-box solution. I mean, if you're looking to start a podcast right now and you want something that's kind of like an all-in-one back-end package, like a hosted fireside, that's what Castopod is. And I've looked at it because it's, it is enticing. It'll support clips it'll generate video clips and it supports the podcasting 2.0 namespace stuff for that it does the value for value stuff so you can do boosts and it supports the transcript stuff there's a lot in that spec and uh, they're one of the like premier places that are supporting it so that's pretty cool i haven't tried it myself because we're already you know we already have a whole system built out but if i were starting today and i didn't have anything i'd be pretty tempted to try castopod i have to say Toxic Safety 89 wrote in two days ago with 3,333 sats. I feel like that's a lucky number. All threes? That's got to be a lucky number thing. I swear to God, my Alexa and Siri are getting worse and worse at understanding me. I love the HomePods like you, Chris, but it's a 50-50 hit rate these days. Do you guys have these problems? Is there anything better out there? <laughs> well, I can't tell you the number of times I have to put on a very bad American accent in order to make my Google Home understand me. Oh, really? It is. A th have you tried changing the voice to the British voice? I have. In fact, when Brent was here, we had a good giggle because we were doing some YouTube searches and I searched for something like, like Tool Danny Carey drumming videos or something. And it came up with something completely random. And I was like, Tool drumming Danny Carey videos. And it just worked first time. So that's your American. That's so great. Yeah, it is. Say, say what you will. But that's my American accent. What of it, bro? I have to be honest, I feel like the Echo, the Amazon devices, their hit rate for me remains the same, but their annoyance rate has skyrocketed. So I don't have any Echoes in the RV where I'm at now, and I don't have any anywhere else except for in one spot, and that is in the studio proper, like the main studio, the JB1 studio where I'm live streaming anyways. I don't care if there's an Echo in there. And that thing is inserting ads and by the ways and did you knows and would you like all the time now. It's so frustrating that I've stopped using it. By the way, 
did you know you can ask for groceries in nine different languages? Yeah. Okay, great. Cool. It's not what I asked for. And then on the flip side with the HomePods, which I too, you know, I like them. I like them like you, Toxic. But the thing is, I swear to God, they're getting stupider. I agree with you. Like, I, I don't know what it is, but the hit rate is so bad these days that I stop. I enunciate really clearly. I speak directly at it. And it used to be one of when I, I swear when I got the HomePods and set them up, I could just bark into the air no matter what noise was going on and they would hear me. And it was such a neat parlor trick. I would show it to people like we could have it super loud in here and I would say something quietly to the HomePod and it would still hear me. And everybody was so impressed. And now I would never dare doing that. I, I swear it's gotten worse. So um, I'm I'm in the same boat as you, Toxic. If anybody out there is using another system besides one of these commercial systems that are doing a, a cloud dictation and all of that, please let me know how it's working for you and if the hit rates are any better. <laughs> Real-time feedback in the Discord. One of our Australian buddies tells me that uh, Almond and Ada, powered by Home Assistant, are uh, some good alternatives. So maybe we should give those a go. But how how accurate like that? I hear that. I don't know. But how are the hit rates compared to the commercial ones? That's what is it? Is it a downgrade? Because when you're the dad and you've deployed all this stuff and then your family goes to use it and it fails them, you always it, yeah, I take it personally every time. I'm embarrassed for the HomePods when they fail to recognize what the wife is asking for. It's embarrassing. Send us a boost and let us know if you'd like to send us a boost. Get a new podcast app at newpodcastapps.com. Good news. Sats are on sale, especially today. They're on sale <laughs> as uh, we as as we record. And you know the great thing is, you can buy them cheaper, and they're still the same great sats. What is Bitcoin these days? What's it doing? I mean, not that I'm watching, but twenty eight thousand nine hundred and fourteen dollars. Not that I'm watching. <laughs> I know, but like I say, oh, man. you get really get more sats now for your money. I don't care. It's still you send it. You can still send us the same three thousand sats. <laughs> it's just you got them for cheaper. Uh, and you can load them up on a new podcast app. In a few years' time, we'll be laughing, huh? Yeah, really. Newpodcastapps.com. Go grab one. Also, if you want a web one, if you want a web player that syncs to a mobile device, I think I've, I was Podverse. I was just trying this out. This is an interesting one. So their whole thing with Podverse is a full-featured web client that syncs to a mobile device client. So that And it also supports – it doesn't do boosts but it supports all the other podcasting 2.0 features, which is pretty great. Been playing around with Audio Bookshelf whilst you've been talking a little bit there, and uh, it's it's the way to go. You can specify a specific date, like in the self-hosted back catalog. I wanted to download everything from May last year, and just in the time we've been talking there, which is, what, five or ten minutes, uh, it's gone and downloaded all those episodes in that time. It doesn't do them all. It only does the ones I asked for, which is, oh, mwah, chef's kiss. That's nice. All right. Boy, another one of these episodes where I've got way too much stuff to do afterwards. We always are making our best efforts to do this show live every other Wednesday. We did it live on May 18th, so you can do the math on that. But we also are listing it at jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar, where you'll get it converted to your local time. Come hang out with us. We're also chatting with the Discord as we do the show. Now, don't forget. If you want to let me know ideas about the London meetup, August 6th is the provisional date. Uh, go to selfhosted.show slash contact. And if you enjoy an episode of this show, share it with a friend. Word of mouth is the best way to share a podcast with someone. It really is. Now, thanks for listening, everybody. That was selfhosted.show slash 71. I have a new soldering iron. Not very exciting normally, but this one is uh, the Pine Sill. This is actually rather exciting. I got to go look this up while you talk about it. You got a link? Are you dropping the link in the uh, doxies for me? I am going to do it to you on the old grams of telly. Okay. I suppose we should put it, put it in the show doc too. And here you go, Discord. This one's for you too. Remind me of the price of this thing too as you're uh, getting set up to tell us about it. I think I paid about $25 for it. All right. Not bad. Battery USB-C capable soldering iron. Now, I already have... A battery-powered soldering iron. This one here. This is the uh, TS100. This is like the OG battery-powered soldering iron. I'm going to hold it up so the stream can see. There is a DC barrel jack on the top and a micro USB port. Now, this thing only runs off of DC power because it needs, uh, I think it's like 15, 20 watts, something like that. No way you can really do that over USB. So... I used to power this off of my uh, LiPo batteries that I used to take out into the field when I was doing like drone racing repairs and stuff like that. So 
This thing for me has seen many hours of frustration sat in a field trying to repair a racing drone that I just crashed into a tree. <laughs> okay. I don't do that much racing drone stuff anymore. But uh, what I do do these days is walk around the house and solder random things into ESP boards in silly places where I shouldn't probably be doing it, like my garage door openers, for example. And I have literally lugged my AC-powered Hakko soldering station downstairs and plugged it into a wall outlet and balanced on top of a ladder. It's not a good idea. Animal. And so what I figured I wanted to do with this pine silt one was get one that is powered not only off of the barrel jack on the top here, you can see it's very similar to the TS-100, but more importantly, it's that port down there, this one, the USB-C port. Oh, nice. So here's the two soldering irons right next to each other. I'm going to show it to the stream. Right. They're pretty much the same size. The pine is slightly bigger. It's got this nice little blue soft rubber grip on it. They both have like a small LCD screen. Yeah, a little OLED screen on it, which tells you the temperature and all that kind of stuff. They've got all sorts of cool trickery in them. Like you can put open source firmwares on these things and play like Tetris if you want to. Don't know why you'd want to, but you could. <laughs> but what's particularly cool is this is powered by USB-C. I don't know if I mentioned that already, but USB-C, people, how cool is that? And what this means is anywhere I have a power delivery capable power bank or a USB power delivery capable outlet of some description... I can now power this thing, and that alone is, is worth the $25 entry price to me. Yeah, I could totally understand that, especially with how often you are doing portable stuff. This thing runs with a whopping 32 kilobytes of RAM, and it has a ginormous 128 kilobytes of internal flash memory. <laughs> how cool is that, huh? That's wild. I'm going to plug it in uh, right now. Over USB-C? Using your handy USB-C cable that you keep there near your desk? Oh, I should have used that one, because that is a power delivery one, I think. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, no, it doesn't quite reach, sadly. What you can see on the stream is here's the little OLED. Oh, yeah, nice and bright. If I cover my face, maybe it'll focus on the screen. Who knows? Um, but essentially, this uh, it has an accelerometer in it. So if you're right-handed, okay, the screen will be one way. And if you're left-handed, it'll flip the screen automatically the other way. That's a nice touch. It's it's not necessary, but it's great. It's got interchangeable tips. There's a little um, Phillips head on here, so I can have you know a, a thin little pencil tip for doing racing drone size stuff, or I can get the big kind of chunky one for doing battery leads and stuff like that. Uh, in terms of holding temperature, which is a question in the Discord, it's pretty good. I mean, it's um, it's not as good as a big hacko. AC powered soldering station that's at my desk, but considering what it is, it's pretty darn good. Yeah. I mean, 25 bucks right now. It's, it looks like maybe eventually it'll be like 35 bucks, but introductory price of 25 bucks, 26 bucks, not bad at all. And also now you can, you can officially say that you own a risk device. Oh, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> I got into this through one of my favorite drone YouTubers called Joshua Bardwell. I'm obviously familiar with the Pine project for the Pine phone and the Pine 64 and all the rest of it. And so when I heard they were doing a soldering iron, it was an instant buy for me, really, just to support the project. But uh, if you want to know more and get some more video about the, the whole soldering iron, like what it looks like, how it works, and all the firmware trickery that you can do with it, take a look at Joshua's video that will be linked in the show notes. 